Oaths Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Today is Sunday, 14th of June. And yes, I got it right this week. Okay, it is really 14th of June, the day that we released this new show. And this is episode number 23 of our season four. And 23, that means next week we're going to produce number 24, which will be the last show in this season but don't worry we will just take one week as a break and on july the 5th season 5 will start and i'm sure that not only season 5 will bring 24 other interesting episodes with interesting guests and great ideas of those guests but also I will introduce a few new features you will see I will talk a little bit more about that next week maybe you should tune in and also listen to the whole intro next week to get those few news right today on episode 23 now uh, which is called living philosophy our guest will be Gary Lackman Right, before we go and meet Gary, let me tell you a few things. First of all, let me say hello and welcome to those of you who are with us here for the first time. And of course, welcome back to all of you who have been here many times. So many times that some of the episodes now cannot stay available and on all podcast outlets anymore. I have selected a few which have been listened to uh, a little less than others. So if you really want to hear all episodes are looking for a particular topic or also if you want to get the show notes of a particular older show you have to go to the website and that website you will find it on thothermes.com that is t-h-o-t-h-e-r-m-e-s.com and yes on that website not only you find all really all episodes plus the show notes but you can also find a contact form to send me some feedback and i really like feedback so do go there send me feedback via the contact form or via the voicemail which is also incorporated on the website there is also always the possibility to give me that feedback via facebook or twitter or to send me an email at info at thoughthermes.com uh, oh, yes, I'm Rudolf. I am your host. I forgot to tell you that for those of you who are new. Right. I'm speaking to you here from the outskirts of lovely Vienna. And um, I also need to remind you a little bit about becoming a patron of this show. We are at 34 patrons on Patreon this week, and that is great. There is another increase of two more patrons this week. Uh, slowly, 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 we are getting there, and I really am grateful for all of you who have joined as a patron. And if you want to do the same, 
You just go on the Thoth Hermes website and you click that Patreon button there. Or you go directly on patreon.com and look for the Thoth Hermes podcast there. Both is possible. And if you're one of those who rather do a one-off donation than become a patron with a weekly small payment, in that case, there is also that donation button on our website and you can always use that one. Right. I want to keep it a bit short today before we delve directly into the interview with Gary Lackman. Um, and as, as always, of course, we also have some music to play for you. And, you know, this week I thought it would be nice to have someone back who has been a long-standing part of this show for two full seasons. And of course, she has also appeared once again intermediately. And I have played her music a bit over a year ago. But I think it's about time to have Wendy Rule back. Those of you who have been with me from the very beginning, you might remember that in the first two seasons, so for a full 22 or 25 episodes, um, Wendy was giving to us the great intro and outro music of this show. And so she was really part of the creation of the show and I really enjoyed that and I love her music. She was also interviewed on the very, very first episode. So um, she was uh, done there in a short interview after the main interview. If you want to go back and listen, episode one, season one, guys, that's where you find her. And, well, Wendy, she released her latest CD in February 2019, so more than a year back. But she's very active on the web at the moment, also with some magical input she's doing on her website. You'll find all the links on the website of Thoughts Hermes in the show notes, so you can find not only her music, but also her other doings. She's recently released a CD with meditations, which I personally find great. Uh, elemental meditations that you can really use for your own meditation if you like that. And today we will play, as we did back uh, in the episode with Bernard Alvarez, where he was our guest, I already played three tracks from her latest release, which is called Persephone. And today there will be three other tracks from that latest CD by Wendy Rule. Okay, so and that first track that we're going to hear now is called Dark Shadow. So now... Go and listen to our Wendy Rule with Dark Shadow. Enjoy.
from her latest CD, Persephone. Find the link on the Thoth Hermes website. It was about time that Gary Leckman comes on the Thoth Hermes podcast for an interview. What? You're going to say what? He was on the show already. I've heard him here. Yes, you're right. Three times he was here, but he never had that big interview. First time I had him here for that great piece i think it was a great piece on colin wilson he gave us a little input there then he was twice with us when he prepared for and or was also guest on different conferences and the latest appearance here was when he was appearing in a great uh, in a great reading a great talk that he gave at occulture berlin and ursula at the time he she interviewed him back then in december and finally, finally, he is now our guest with a full one-hour interview, and I'm very happy to have him. Gary, he is the author of, I believe, 21 books on topics that range from Sigi Young to Blavatsky to Rudolf Steiner to Uspensky, Colin Wilson, who I mentioned, and 
the immediate um, reason why we talk to him beyond the fact that he is a great guy and he really needs to be on this show the real reason the, the behind that is also that he has just just this week released the book which is called the return of holy russia a really interesting book i must say i like it very much um its release the book's release has been a bit kind of uh, uh hindered by all that's going on with the covid virus and that tragedy back there i hope all of you you are really healthy and safe and if you are in sorrow or if you have people who are affected by that well I wish you all the best, and I'm sure everyone here listening wishes you all the best too. Back to Gary. Gary, so he his book should have appeared already, but I believe back in March and has been delayed. Now it's out on the market, can be purchased finally. Uh, and I think you really should go and have a look at that. It's very interesting. We are going to talk about the return of Holy Russia in the second part of the interview. In the first part, Gary is telling us a lot about his life and those of you who know a bit about his life they know also that he is member of the rock and roll hall of fame yes indeed he is he was member of that famous group blondie in the 1970s and uh, well of course that has also influenced a lot but before all that or yeah basically before or immediately after Blondie, he did also studies of philosophy. And that's why this show today is called Living Philosophy. Because I think that Gary is one of those who, after studying philosophy, really made something of real life out of it. I'm not saying philosophy is dead, my goodness. No, no, I would never say that. It's a great subject, philosophy. But he really made a very lively and vivid um, thing out of it. He, he put his knowledge and his wisdom in books and on books on other people. He, his histories of hermeticism and the Western inner tradition is really something that is worth reading. Well, go on his website or go on the Thoughts Hermes website, see what a large, a large range of books he wrote and how interesting Gary is. So without further ado, let's go to London and meet Gary Lackman. And before we go there, just to remind you, after 35 minutes or so into this interview, we will take a little musical break. As always, we will listen to Wendy Rule this week again. And until then, I now tell you, let's go to London and meet Gary Lackman. Here comes the interview. I'm very glad to say hello to someone here on the Thoughts Hermit podcast who I have had on this podcast already more than once. Um, and it was always those short appearances. The very first time I remember it was in the episode that we did about Colin Wilson and Gary Lackman, who is a specialist on Colin Wilson, then was kind enough to give us a his opinion and his words about Colin Wilson for that for that uh, episode back then. Then we did two other meetings here when he was speaking in conferences that we covered. But finally, finally, it is about time, Gary. Welcome on the Thought Hermes podcast for a full episode, just not on anybody else, but on Gary Lackman. I'm really happy to have you here tonight. Hello there. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on again. 
no, of course. Um, Gary, yes, you, I don't know if you know, but this, um, this, uh, this one hour interviews that I do here, usually, usually I start him with a question, which is always a bit similar for everyone. Um, uh, to cut the long story short, what made you the Gary Lackman that you are today? Um, what, so tell us a bit about your background. Where did it all start? Of course, your life, many of us know, some of uh, us might not, has had several lives almost, uh, one can, uh. can say. And uh, well, wherever you want to start, but of course, then bringing us back to today here what is making up the gary lackman that you are today what what has happened well okay well um well i'm a, I'm a late boomer i was born at the end of uh, 1955 and i grew up on um, comic books um, and science fiction and fantasy and horror films and all that And then um, later on, you know, obviously got, you know, in touch with rock, whatever it was at the time in the, in the early 70s. But uh, I guess, um, you know, my plunge out into the world was um, when I started playing with uh, a then unknown, but um, rather soon to be world famous Blondie. I mean, they were world famous after I was with them, so I wasn't part of the world famous bit. But I, I, I touched the hem of stardom, as they used to say. So I was close to uh, the world I was in the orbit of. But any case, yeah, I started playing with them in New York in 1975. I had already been living in New York. I'd left home, oh, about the year before. And I was living in New York and writing a lot of bad poetry and starving and working as a messenger. And um, Clem Burke, who's their drummer, I knew him from Bayonne High School where in New, New Jersey, where we both grew up. Yeah. And um, he used to have a band. And um, we used, uh, I used to carry his drums in, you know, to, you know, the high school dances and things like that. And then he's, mm -hmm. he answered this ad in the Village Voice and he went wound up playing with um, Blondie um, before they, you know, were Blondie. Then they lost their bass player. He quit to join um, a group called Television, who were very big at that time. And uh, he joined them because Richard Hell left Television to, he started another group called the Heartbreakers and all that. So this is all in this kind of time in the 74 and 75 in New York. And then I right. auditioned and I started playing. And then when we were all living together um, on a, in a, this very kind of rundown loft space on the Bowery, Um, almost cliche isn't it well that's what we were doing we were you know we, yeah. we, did, we did more than walk on the wild side put it that mm -hmm. way uh we were in that i was in that world for quite you know quite some time but uh, my interest in the sort of thing i wound up having a second career uh, about um which was much longer than my career in music um i remember living in this place this loft space uh There was a very wild, flamboyant artist who um, was basically renting out the, the, the spaces, the floors. And he was into Aleister Crowley, and he had oh. um, a pack of Crowley's Thoth Tarot deck, which at the time was still relatively rare. You didn't see too many of them. And um, he would do these impromptu readings, and he was painting uh, uh, these canvases based on some of the tarot trumps. And Chris and Debbie had a kitschy kind of interest in this sort of thing. They had voodoo dolls and upside down pentagrams and candles and stuff like that. So I, I didn't have any interest in that. But in that milieu, I started to get interested in. And the, you mentioned Colin Wilson. Well, that was the thing that did it. I read his book, The Occult. It's just called The Occult. came out in 71. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it just, um, yeah, what can I say? It literally changed my life um, because I just became interested in that whole world, the occult, the paranormal, the mystical, the esoteric, and so on. And um, what started out as a kind of 
youthful enthusiasm um, over time became more or less, uh, as I said, a kind of second career writing about this sort of thing. Right. And before we leave the, the world of rock and roll, I think you're being modest uh, because you're you're part of rock and roll Hall of Fame anyway, aren't you? Uh, yeah. Well, that, well, yeah, yeah, that that was. Yeah. That, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to feign, you know, modesty, but I, I just never thought that that would happen. That was in 2006. So that's that's some mm -hmm. years ago now. But yeah, I mean. Yeah. That was one of the last yeah. times, I, last times I saw them. But yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, what can I say? I, uh, I did what every kid in America wanted to do, or yeah. the world probably being a rock band. So um, right, and you were. So, yeah, there, there you go. So Alistair Crowley came across you in that loft in New York, and um, but well, even even so, many have came come across Alistair Crowley <laughs> without <laughs> being coming specialists and writers. And so, what was your experience with that i mean practical maybe first before you start writing you probably you probably tried things didn't you oh yeah yeah i mean i i, I do write about this time which is um well i said the mid 70s up into about 1981 i did a book called new york rocker my life in the blank generation which is about my music time but this is mm. at the same time in the background is um kind of the beginning of all this stuff and yeah for a time in in la um i was involved with um a crowley Crowley group there. And, uh, I mean, I, you know, I started reading stuff. I was taken with it. I, I, I thought it was this fascinating, you know, uh, character and all that. And, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, who doesn't want to do what you, you will to when you're about 19. And so yeah, it was, you know, um, very interested in that. And, um, again, it was a wonderful time, um, mm -hmm. in, in both in New York. And then when I moved to Los Angeles at the end of 77 and, mm -hmm. um, I started my own band there called The No, and that was comes from my interest okay. in my interest in Gnosticism. But uh, but but uh, but just even in back in '75, when I was first getting interested in this stuff, um, it was a great time because there was sort of an occult boom right. in publishing, and um, there were lots of reprints of um, classic texts that were in the public domain, and so they could be p printed and you know, sold cheaply. And then lots of good, you know, it was Colin Wilson with those other people, Francis King. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, a, a lot of people coming over from the UK, I was, I was reading, um, that, that aren't that well known anymore. Jeffrey Ash or, um, oh, yeah. people like Stan Gooch is a sort of different kind of thing. So, I mean, there was a lot of that stuff. And then when I moved to LA and you would think, yeah, LA would be the place where you, you would wind up actually getting involved and yeah i did it for a while it, it wasn't a particularly successful adventure but at least um you know as i said i i, I wasn't an armchair um kind of um you know just observer of it and i i yeah and I, and i moved on from that and then i became after that in in the 80s i uh, early 80s i was involved with the gurdjieff work for a while um, right in, in new york and los angeles as well but that that's back then i haven't been i'm not affiliated yeah, with any yeah. particular uh, and but you also seem to have a quite a, a strong relationship to the work of Rudolf Steiner because you have uh, more than others I would say in the field you have not only written about him but he he even in the book we're going to talk here today the, mm, in the very mm. first line the name mm, Steiner mm, came mm, up mm. so is that somebody who who impressed you more than others or oh no I wouldn't say I mean well a different time I mean a different time I mean there was a time actually when I briefly thought about maybe becoming a Steiner teacher but this was all right this was back when i well uh I, i went through this well after stopped playing in music in 81 and then um I sort of you know I, i went and got a degree in philosophy after that and then i was sort of like what am i going to do 
because uh, I wasn't quite suited for the real world, as it were. Uh, and but I <laughs> why, didn't want to why was that? <laughs> oh well, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm uh, I guess I'm sort of more of a romantic kind of character than mm. you know that sort. Of, although I'm 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 rather practical when it comes to work. I, I, I keep uh, you know regular business hours when it comes. That's the only way you can survive as a I'm sure as a writer in any way. But uh, and I, I you know I I prefer to work alone <laughs> that way. <laughs> I mean, um, some people are better off in groups and some work better on their own. And I'm, I set my own, you know, deadlines and things right. of that sort. Yeah. But in, in any case, but, you know, for quite some time, I had to be in the real world. And it was all right. I, I worked for many years at um, a place called the Bodhi Tree uh, Bookshop in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which was uh, the preeminent metaphysical bookshop west of the Rockies. And Absolutely. it was, uh, and you talk about Steiner. And so it was while I was there working at this bookshop and, um, I, I didn't start reading about Steiner until later on. He wasn't one of the ones because he, it, for some reason, it put me off. Just like Blavatsky, to tell you the truth, I didn't really read yeah. Blavatsky until later on. And I was surprised when I finally did. And when I wrote a book about Blavatsky, I wound up mm-hmm. really like, liking her a lot. Not so much mm-hmm. becoming a theosophist, but I liked her. You know. No, I know and, what you mean. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I, I could see how important she was. But Steiner, it was. Yeah. I mean, it, this story is. This is back in say the late '80s, and I was working at the bookshop, and I'd see this whole wall of you know books by or about Steiner or his lectures and all this sort of thing. And I was doing this degree in philosophy at the time, and I'd already read quite a bit of philosophy, and I wound up doing a degree in philosophy because my friends were saying, "You read all these books, you got to find something to do with yourself. You know, why don't you go back to school?" So this was when I was in my late twenties, and uh, I okay. said, "Okay, all right, uh, yeah, all right." After you know, dropping out of, you know, music and other things. And so I wound up, you know, studying philosophy and I enjoyed it and I, I, I was very good at it. And, and, and I thought I was going to wind up teaching it. That was sort of the thing I was going to do then. So in the late eighties into the, you know, uh, early nineties, the, the, that was my plan. And that was mm-hmm. like, everyone congratulated me on doing something so practical from going, being in a rock star or want to be rock star to want to teach philosophy somewhere. I said, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. It's a rare step. absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> perfect step sense. Oh, well, my philosophy professors, they would say, yeah, they can't believe that I was doing this. But in any case, it was sort of like, so I'm reading Hegel and Kant mm-hmm. and all that. And then I see Steiner has written about them and he's written a book about Nietzsche. And I'd already sure. read a lot of Nietzsche. So I thought, okay, let me check this out. And um, he's actually quite cogent in his criticisms of, of Kant and Kantian epistemology mm-hmm. and, you know, the ding on Zeke and all of that sort of thing. And I thought, wow, this is very interesting. And he's, he's you know, he, he writes well about Nietzsche and, and so on. And then you pick up another book and he's talking about the Buddha on Mars uh, or it's Lemuria or it's some other, you know, eccentric yeah <laughs> to say the least kind of idea and it's like well how do i equate these two things because he's obviously not um a madman and he's not just a raving kind of you know loony as they say here mm-hmm. uh, uh but still it's kind of like i don't quite understand this and then i just said okay well i started reading and um this fellow named owen barfield who's an english writer he's a friend of c.s lewis and of tolkien and uh, but, right but, yes but he yeah. but he was also a student of, of, of steiner's or mm-hmm. studied steiner's philosophy and he writes very well of it and in, in the context of other thinkers like the german idealists or the uh, english romantics or goethe and people like that mm-hmm. and so yeah. he was like a bridge for me to say okay I, I i get this i get it through this and then after that i took the plunge and then but it wasn't until quite some time later that i decided to write the book about him um, yeah, which that came in in the late two thousand. Right? Yeah, well, yeah, two thousand seven, and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that came about because at that time I 
my sons, uh, my two, two sons, uh, and they were young, um, they were going to a Steiner school Okay. Here in London, uh, their mother very much wanted them to do that, and uh, Pembroke uh, Muse or somewhere around there is that isn't uh, that? Well, well, the one is uh, this one was in Highbury. It was on um, right. Okay. Um, <laughs> over that way, <laughs> and um, I realized that a lot of the parents who I met there, they sort of knew the Steiner School was a better, you know, was an alternative to state education, and they, they know all the good reasons why they should go there, but they didn't really know much about Steiner himself. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of them were put off that most of the books about him were sort of hagiographies, you know, um, written by true believers. And, right. you know, they have this kind of, there's often a rather sanctimonious tone to them that, that um, if, you know, if you're the least bit critical reader, that'll put you off. And I thought just purely practically, I thought, oh, well, there's a market there. And I, I was really interested. I, I wanted, to, I, and I also for myself, I wanted to nail, okay, what is it about him that I find important and because it isn't like, okay, let me walk you through all of Steiner, because there's a lot of him that I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm personally not that interested. I'm, I'm more interested totally. in his early, his early work. That, the early work, yeah, there you are, yeah. Based on Goethe and his whole kind of active seeing and his kind of, you know, imagination. Yes. The as philosophy a, of freedom, probably. Yeah, things of that sort. Yeah. I just yeah. I just found mm -hmm. those more interesting than yeah. the later stuff. And, um, but, you know, I mean, so there was an audience and there was a good story. And um, I learned a lot. That's one of the things I like about doing yeah. these books. I mean, I'm not an yeah. expert until after I write the book. So I yeah, without <laughs> only to compliment you, but I'm happy we're talking about that because, uh, well, uh, that's probably linked to my geographical location. But uh, I I know quite a bit about Steiner myself as well, and and I've never been member of the society either. But um, I quite I'm a bit like you. I quite, I mostly like his early works. I had my kids at school there, excellent. And uh, the book that you uh, wrote, I think it's one of the best I know about him, exactly because it's not uh, geography and it's not just ad admiration but it's not overcritical either you know mm -hmm. only, you only no, no. find those two the ex, uh, extremes normally and this book i really find a, a very good book so mm -hmm. well thank you i, I appreciate uh, no, it right, uh, right but, but what did bring you to from the philosophy studies to writing books and especially those kinds of books that you well you write different types of books but let's say the ones that we are going to talk here mm -hmm. today mostly what did bring you i think the first was on wilson or am i wrong the the first really bigger book was that one um well it depends on you write a bigger book i mean the wilson book was something i you know i mean i've been reading him since 1975 so i'm not no, sure uh but i mean you know secret history of consciousness is sort of an overview of a variety of different non-productive yeah. non-scientific and um mm -hmm. but um well, Secret Teachers, uh, two books with secret in the title, but uh, Secret <laughs> Secret Teachers of the Western World, which is... But that's a later one, right? That's that's a late, okay, but that's, yeah. that's a big, you know, um, mm. survey history sort of thing. And I, what I, I like, I like the narrative. That's the thing I like, you know, about it. Mm -hmm. I'm, um, I mean, it, in one sense, it just gives a pulse to, to the, re the reader. You know, there's a kind of things are moving in a certain direction. So you try to make it a page turner and... I mean, it's hard enough writing a page turner about, you know, normal things. It's, it's, <laughs> unless you're going to sensationalize it. And I'm, 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 I, I'm, I'm not trying to do that. And, and actually, I mean, I, I think, I think I fall in this middle category between 
sort of academic work that's been done in this area in the last 20 something years, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, it's very good and thorough and all that, but it's a bit dry. And then you get the, oh, the, the occult, ooh, the sensational stuff that is, uh, yeah. And, um, it's not dry, but it's, it's too, <laughs> you know, it's too sensational. And, yeah. and, and it's kind of like, I mean, I, I try to write the books that I used, that I liked reading when I first was reading about this sort of stuff and everything else, you know, it's something you, you learn from them and they, they yeah. provide a knowledge and information. They have a point of view and there's certain ideas that guide and all that, but, um, it's, it's, I mean, I think we've lost that, you know, I mean, there's the, the, mm. the sort of professionalism and specialization that really took over sometimes in the eighties and that everybody had to have a PhD or whatever it is, or be a doctor or something to write about this kind of stuff. And it was sort of like, you know, Colin was one of these people. I mean, another one, he didn't write about the occult, but he did write about parapsychology as Arthur Kessler. I mean, he, in his mm-hmm. later books, um, just, you know, even say Aldous Huxley or someone like that. I mean, I, right. I, just, I mean, it's something, you know, someone who's not an expert, but, or they're an expert in many things, you know, but it, it's, it's this, I don't want to say this kind of, um, you know, independent, um, independent scholar, independent, independent scholar who mm-hmm. is not constrained by, um, either having tenure or having to mention all of his academic peers, otherwise they'll they'll write yeah. a bad review of the book, or <laughs> or, or uh, you know or you know and it, 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 I'm saying just that that whole notion the man of letters is kind of not trusted these days. I mean, yeah, I mean one of the, one of the last ones who wasn't actually not quite because he was rather academic was George Steiner. I don't know if you know him. He uh, yeah sure just, just sure. died recently and um, he yeah, was one of these and, and all that. So sure. I mean I'm, I'm I'm not claiming to be in the same league as those guys, but that's sort of the thing I'm I'm always liked writing about and um i try to do that in in the the, the books that i do yeah um was colin wilson in that respect uh, an example for you i mean not only by content but also by his type of writing on the occult and that oh yeah no certainly certainly because um what i what i found fascinating about the occult when i was reading and again i'm I'm 19 you know and i'm just Mm. getting introduced to this kind of thing is um that it, it wasn't a book about spells or, you know, ghost stories yeah. or witches yeah, yeah. and all that. Um, he was approaching it from a existential point of view mm-hmm. about philosophy of consciousness and, um, you know, um, the, these moments of, uh, well, I mean, I later discovered his whole uh, philosophy of the outsider and, and the outsider was yeah, sure. his first book, but it is all about these individuals who, you know, are deeply, deeply concerned about questions of meaning and purpose and mm. all of that. And they have these flashes of moments of heightened, intense consciousness. And I said, yes, absolutely. That's, you know, that's what, that's what I want. Um, and I've had a few of them already. So yeah. And that was the reason why I first got interested in Crowley too, because he's sort of talking about that. Sure. But then, then it just, it just became too claustrophobic for me because I mean, all roads, I think the difference between the two is that all roads led to Crowley and then Wilson, all the roads are going out. No way. Yes, exactly. They're sort of going out into the world. I mean, yeah, yeah, you can follow the roads to Crowley and they're fascinating in many ways. But after a while, it's kind of like you're in um, you're in a closed system, I I, I felt. And um, Wilson, it was like radiating out and you don't have to agree with everything. But he kind of points you in lots of really interesting directions. And he also he's writing about other people's ideas and he's in conversation with them. And so you follow up those leads and you get, mm-hmm. well, what I've said in other le- uh, um, talks, you get, you get, um, a, you know, kind of liberal arts education, you know, 
Exactly. He, he's a bit of a renaissance man of the occult in that book, isn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah. And then the other yeah, ones, the, yeah. the mysteries and the, uh, he did in the late 70s, and there's one mm-hmm. called Beyond the Occult that came out in the yeah. 80s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, they go over the same ground, but he's also, he's always opening up new things and he's making new connections and absolutely. he's refining, refining his own thought. And they're thrilling. And that's the thing, too. They're absolutely thrilling books to read about ideas, which it, it just, I don't know anyone who's got that kind of, voice or that, that ability. I mean, there was one of his, one review said he had the ability to make a telephone directory exciting, you know, so it's, you know, so it's sort of just that kind of great narrative, um, style that, um, I, I yeah. just find absolutely hypnotic. Sure. That helps. But I don't know if you can say that, uh, because we are maybe too much into it now, but, um, 40 years later is Colin Wilson still of the same value to you or has well, that changed with all that um, happened in between? Well, I mean, we all grow up a bit, so it's, um, hmm. You know, you're in conversation with, again, that's what I always want to, uh, how should I say it? That, that's something I've always sort of felt that I wanted to be, was I wanted to be at the table in the conversation with these people. So Wilson's one and Spensky's another right. and Steiner is one and Nietzsche's another one and, you know, whatever, all those, all those yeah. people that you have an ongoing kind of, you know, uh, discourse with uh, to speak and, um, you know. Um, you know, uh, fashionable talk. And uh, yeah, the things change at different times. I mean, one thing I have to say is um, any readability I've managed to um, achieve comes from reading and rereading his, his mm-hmm. books because it is trying mm-hmm. to get this clear style. And yeah. I mean, I think you need to do that. I think if you're going to, if you only ask people to pay attention to what you, you've got to say about something, you need to be able to entertain them. And I don't mean in the sense of seeking some lowest common denominator sensational entertain just mean basically you, you keep them, you keep them enchanted with what you're saying. You, you keep them interested in what you're saying and uh, a certain clarity and making ideas clear is uh, um, something that's really important. I, I think, you know, this is a joke, but you know, the reason someone like Wilson, you know, there isn't like a school built around him because he's, he's crystal clear. You don't have to have to interpret him. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, Heide- sure. Heidegger and Derrida and all these other guys, they generate. Steiner. They, well, Steiner too. Yeah. They, yeah. They generate a whole industry of, of interpreters, you know? Um, so, you know, if you want a following, <laughs> write as, as, as um, unreadable as you, as you can. Be obscure. You know? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But do you think the fact that you have to, catch people and you to drag them along do you think the stage work that you did before the music work i mean i'm i'm a stage person not in the same field than you but um uh, do you think you learned that there or you realized that there or is that something completely different well i think it's related um Mm. in the sense that um how should we say it well i mean after writing songs you know and and you know lyrics and something um I don't know. What do you want to say? There's a certain kind of flow or uh, it, it scans well. And so you, I, I guess I try to, I, I don't consciously try to do this, but there's probably an instinctive, intuitive it's kind part of, of you. sense yeah. of, mm-hmm. you know, oh, these sentences, they go together like that as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, but one thing that's very different is that when I was a musician and um, I mean, performing is one thing and then the songwriting and all that. I mean, I, I the song came all of a piece very quickly or, mm-hmm. it, di- or it didn't come at all. Whereas, um, and that all was sort of intuitive in, in that kind of way. And, and, and past a certain point when I was sort of losing 
I guess, inspiration. Um, I could never, anytime I just tried to sit down and say, okay, well, I have to write a song and you kind of hammer it out. Uh, they were never as good. And I, yeah, I, sure. I never, I never liked them myself. Whereas it took me a long time to learn how to write insofar as I know how to, I mean, I had to yeah. spend about 10 years actually going from wanting to, I mean, cause originally that's what I was doing. Oh, I was going to be a poet and all that kind of stuff. Then I, you know, rock and roll picked me up and I was, Oh, this is much better writing these songs and jumping around and trying to get people to listen to your poetry. But then I somehow the idea of like, no, I want to be a writer. I don't know, some some kind of more serious uh, mm -hmm. persona. Mm -hmm. um, and also, you know, the more I read. I, I told, you know, I say this in the book, I just was getting um, too smart for rock and roll. You know, just the more I read, just my interest widened and you can't. You know, there's only so much you can do in, in a rock and roll song, just like there's only so much you can do in, in lyric poetry. You can't yeah. you can't stretch it too yeah. far. And, sure. um, you know, you have a lot of bands that do try to, how should we say it, say something a bit portentous and serious in, in mm -hmm. pop tunes. And, they're, you know, they're they're easily unlisten unlistenable. Um, the underground. The, the underground <laughs> air. So I just, yeah, felt, yeah. I just felt like what I thought I wanted to say, I couldn't say in that form anymore. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't able to actually write anything that was worth reading un un mm -hmm. until like, you know, 10 years later, basically. Right. But you do not decide, well, you might decide one day I, w I will become a writer. Okay. But then you still, you have to have somebody who says, okay, I'll publish that book. Uh, <laughs> which book was that? When did that happen? What, oh, uh, the first book was Turn Off Your Mind. Right. Uh, the Mystic Sixties and the Dark Side of the Age of Aquarius, which is my... That was uh, the first one. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, that was uh, 20 years ago, approximately? Uh, more or less. I think it came, yeah. out, came out 2001. And mm -hmm. I got the... Well I, uh, well, I was right. I got the con contract for it in 1998. So I was, I was, it was, I was writing it in, in 2000, or had already written it and all that. Mm -hmm. And it's this revisionist kind of history of the 60s. I mean, again, I didn't start out wanting it to be this way. Um, I, what had happened is I... Um, Jesus... Uh, uh, there was, uh, there was like a, um, 1997, there was a big celebration of, um, something that was called the 14, 14 hour Technicolor dream, which was a big, um, sixties event in 67 held up at a place called Alley Pally, Alexandra Palace here, uh, in North London and mm -hmm. Pink Floyd and lots of other bands had this long, you know, kind of thing. And I, so 97, yeah. it was like 30 years on mm -hmm. and I went to some talk about it or something and um i don't know i don't know what, what uh, yeah I, I don't know I, I think i said something I, I i must have made a comment at some point and some people came up to me and said oh well we're doing this 60s thing in uh in, in wolverhampton which is a you know the mm. city out, outside of london and you know would you like to give a talk and uh, never having given a talk in public i said yeah absolutely sure mm. and uh i and i just decided okay i'm going to give a talk about the 60s Sixties mm -hmm. uh, about this thing, and th th there was this idea that you know there this be a cult revival of the nineteen sixties, and this was right. sort of a, a theme. And I said, well, you know, you have the sexual revolution, and you have the drug revolution, and the political revolution, and the social revolution, but there was also the magical revolution, and it's true. You know, the sixties there were a decade that were all of the popular culture um, and a lot of serious culture as well were, were informed by these yeah. occult ideas. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, the, the obvious um, kind of, you know, high watermark of that is um, Crowley being on the cover of 
Sgt. Pepper's, you know, the yeah, Beatles sure. album and all that kind of thing. Sure. And so, I mean, everybody knows this, but I, I, it has looked to me like, oh, yeah, there's all this stuff, but nobody's really, nobody's kind of put it together in, mm-hmm. in, that, in that way from that, you know, there's all these books on the 60s. And then as I started doing the research um, and reading about it and then reading um, people like Nicholas Goodrich Clark, who I actually, I knew, I know he, he's, you know, one of the first um big academic people in, in the academic esotericism and, um, mm-hmm. he, um, you know, uh, and, um, he did that book about, um, uh, what is it? The occult Nazis. I forget the, the exact title. I don't, I don't know. Is he the one in, 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 in Scotland who where was in Edinburgh? Yeah, no, no, or he was, he, well, he, no, he was in England. He was, um, okay. um, it was, um, the occult roots of Nazism. I'm trying to remember. Uh, okay. Brains. Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The eighties. And mm-hmm. it was the first, one of the first ones about Ariosophy or, or, or yes. at least in English, at least in English. Mm-hmm. And then he was running this program down at, in, in Exeter, um, for a long time. Um, okay. that was, you know, one of these early, um, universities who had a, a program in esotericism, program, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. um, like there's in Amsterdam now and, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 uh, other places. Um, so any case, uh, <laughs> just reading about, and there's all this stuff about parallels between what was happening in Germany and or the German speaking world in, um, sort of, the, you know, the, uh, running up to, National Socialism, say, yeah. say uh, or, or going back, say early the uh, Fondacieck. So you have Monteverita, yeah. uh, uh, at the early days of Ascona, uh, mm. and all of that. And then you also have all this Volkish and Back to Nature, and mm. um, you know a variety of different kinds of things that seemed people just had discovered them in the '60s had already been going on back then. But sadly, um, they seem to shift towards you know the, the right side of the political spectrum when yeah, you look, look exactly. at them, not on the left side. Yeah. And so there was all this kind of strange, um, resonances with, and you know, that's still, still, I mean, I yeah. certainly came sure. to see that's, that's kind of the case of uh, yeah. not only that there's a, I, I did a book about politics and the occult called politics and the occult strength mm-hmm. enough about yeah. the fact that actually there's a kind of progressive left occult politics as well. It's not solely on the right, but yeah. a lot, of, a lot of it is. And, and, um, yeah. so in any case, so turn off your mind was sort of, it, it turned into this revisionist history of the sixties seen from this point of view of it being, Oh, it wasn't all flower power. You know, there was a lot of, you know, dark side, obviously Manson is, you know, and, and then, uh, you know, black magic and Satanism and all this kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, and it was kind of tongue in cheek. And I also subsequently realized I was unconsciously doing, you know, what, what Harold Bloom, the um, American literary critic, uh, talk, right. talked about this kind of uh, um, uh, agon of, of uh, anxiety of influence where you, you want to do, okay. do away with your Oedipal fathers in some way, you know, yeah, so I yeah. kind of, haul, I haul Alan Watts on the carpet and Castaneda and Leary and all these kind of people. And I'm okay. sort of like, uh, no, cause I, I loved all that stuff. I read it. And sure. I, I grew up during the sixties. I love the sixties. I mean, sixties yeah. for me were, I mean, uh, sadly you had, you know, the Vietnam going on, but you know, you had a lot of great pop culture. Definitely, um, and also in, in in the UK, you know, a lot of stuff was yeah. tripped over, yeah. obviously. But you kind of took often on the task, and not easy task, always to to put also those big names as the 
into a book, so to speak. You had Uspensky, you had Steiner, we mentioned that. We had Jung, you had Swedenborg, Lavatsky. So, um, I mean, those are like those pillars. What, what did incite you to, to take them? I just, well, I just became fascinated with them. Um, I mean, after what I do, I have to turn off your mind and, um, I did this, the, the book New York Rocker about my, my, my rock and roll memoir. Yeah. Then I did this book Secret History of Consciousness, which I was a sort of overview. But mm -hmm. then, um, I mean, the first biography I did was um, Uspensky. And I did that mm -hmm. because I, he was one of the first ones I read. I mean, he's most known right. as, he's most known as um, you know, the, the most eloquent expositor of Gurdjieff's uh, yeah, work. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. miraculous. But, you know, he was mm -hmm. the philosopher and thinker in his own right. And yeah. um, and he wrote a lot about the occult, the tarot and a and, um, variety of different sorts of things. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, before I read his book about Gurdjieff and Search and Miraculous, I read his book, New Model of the Universe, which has all this, you know, stuff about the fourth dimension and the eternal recurrence and things on dream. And it's, it's a big compendium because he has these mm -hmm. you know, different essays and chapters on lots of different, you know, the tarot, the Superman, there's all different chapters on things. And it just, you know, and he's talking about esotericism, the idea that there's this hidden knowledge that's not available in, you know, in, in the mainstream, but it's still being taught in these schools and in this, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. I want to find one of those. And you know, so again, there's some 20, you know, 20 years old, it just was, um, yeah, it, it just was very, very exciting. And, um, and then, but then when I got to know, uh, and again, I was in, I, I was involved in the Gurdjieff work for some time in the early eighties mm -hmm. for about four or five years. And, um, what I felt was that uh, in the long run, I felt that Gurdjieff didn't really understand Uspensky. And I thought Uspensky got a lot of bad press and ultimately in kind of that, fourth way world because he's wow. seen as someone who's too intellectual and didn't really understand right. Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff is more of this, well, not quite the crazy guru, but in that kind of category where he's not, you know, he isn't systematic and it's not this kind of logical, almost scientific approach that uh, Uspensky had. It's more live, a improv and live and, and, and all that. From and, the belly. Yeah. 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 And I just yeah. felt like he got a lot of bad press. And, and so I, I thought, um, and there's lots of books about Gurdjieff, but there's hardly any about Uspensky. So, and he was a hero. So I wanted to like, okay, tell his story. And it's not a hagiography. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I try to bring out places where I think he was wrong. And it's very, very sad that he wound up drinking himself to death basically yeah. Yeah. um yeah. but yeah. uh and, that, and and then again i like that i think in some ways i might be a frustrated novelist but i, I can't make this stuff <laughs> up i can't make this stuff up but i like the lives of these people and you know and, and you see the ideas in action you know i had had these ideas but th their life was you know an engagement with these ideas. So it's kind of living philosophy that they weren't armchair philosophers or armchair mystics and you know, Steiner's the same way and the other ones. And, um, and then once you do one of those and, you know, I mean, I forget who said it, but somebody said like, once you write one book, you write another and then another, you just get kind of get used to doing it. And, um, it became actually the way I was making a living. You know, um, living from advance to advance, doing lots of talks, writing articles, lots of journalism. I was doing book reviewing a lot, um, not, not for some time, but uh, mm -hmm. there was a time and I was doing it a lot. So it just turned into something that uh, and I always wanted to do it. So here I am. We will, of course, come back in a few minutes to talk more to Gary Lackman about his life, his background, his ideas, and then, of course, also talk about his new book, The Return of Holy Russia. And in the meantime, while we are taking this little break, 
we're going to listen to Wendy Rule again. Wendy has released her latest CD in February 2019. It is called Persephone. I think it's a very special style, very different from what we know from her before. And the second song that we are going to hear now is called Hollow. So this is Hollow, a song with and by Wendy Rule. Gone, 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 gone,
Song with and by Wendy Rule from her CD Persephone. And now let's go back to speak with Gary Lackman, where we have a lot of things to discuss now and further. They'll go more into Gary's ideas and also into his future plans. And I think there are quite a few interesting out there. And we're going to talk about his book, The Return of Holy Russia, why he wrote it, what inspired him and what was so important for him to write that book. At the end of this interview, as always, we will immediately play our third piece of music. And this will be another song from Persephone by Wendy Rule. And this third song we're going to hear today is called Eleusis. So maybe... We will learn something out about the mysteries of Eleusis by Wendy Rule. Hmm, we'll see. But now, back to Gary Lackman. When did you move to London? Uh, beginning of 1996. Right, but that was not related to that, to that kind of uh, uh, approach in your work, or or that was just another matter, right? Oh, yeah. Well, that's that. That's a whole other story. I mean, uh, I wound up living in London because the life, the life I had in Los Angeles collapsed and it all kind of yeah, right. exploded right. in front of me. And uh, sure, well, a, a marriage uh, fell apart, and then I was yeah, working. Yeah, yeah. I was working actually for a while for, as a science writer for the University of California in Los Angeles. Oh, really? I, oh, I should never, I should never have the job. But um, no, uh, I mean, the, 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 the story about that is um, again. This was during this time when I, you know, hadn't. I, I was writing articles and book reviews, but I was still either working at this bookshop, and then I was thinking, well, I, I want to do something more than work at the bookshop. It's nice here and all that, but you know, it, I, I just I want to use my mind more and be creative and so on and so mm -hmm. on. But I couldn't, you know, I, I wasn't, I, I, I wouldn't yet have been able to make a living just from writing. And mm -hmm. even now, it's it's hand to mouth. It's not it's not easy. <laughs> um, I'm sure. And so I still had to find some kind of work, and I didn't know what to do. I kept. I mean, uh, at one point I went back to university and I was going to get a P, uh, uh, I was doing graduate work in English literature and I was going to teach English. And then I just, it was, I just hated it when I was back in graduate school. It was just full of, I was a fish out of water I and mean, I was all deconstructing, mm. deconstructing this and feminist that and post-colonial that. And it just, uh, I mean, all mm -hmm. those things are noble pursuits of, on their own, but they're not for me. <laughs> I couldn't find a place. And so yeah. I, I, after a year, I 
quit that. And then I tried to write a novel for a year. And um, it was, it was you know, apprentice work. And I gave readings at different cafes in L.A. This was a time when uh, L.A. discovered cappuccino and uh, espresso <laughs> um, in, in the mid, 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 uh, early, early, early <laughs> mid-90s. And everyone was pretending to read Ulysses or Proust at, at these co- <laughs> coffee houses. Um, and, um, but then that didn't last. And I had to get work. And my wife at the time, um, yeah. she saw an ad in the L.A. Times that the... Uh, UCLA was looking for a science writer and, and I had written some articles about pop science or chaos theory or something like that, book reviews. And she said, apply for the job. And I said, fine, I'll never get it and I'll get her off my back. Yeah. And, and so I, I sent them in some stuff and short story is they got back to me and said, when did, when, when would you like to start? Really? So, yeah, that's yeah, fun. No, but you know, I had yeah. this, it was, it's a kind of typical story because they had this, you know, in normal terms, a great job, you know, well-paying, have my own parking space and office and all that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But I just mm-hmm. wasn't happy. Yeah. Um, what I really wanted to do was write about these sorts of ideas. So mm-hmm. it all collapsed. Um, and then when I turned 40, I, I uh, came to London. And I, I, I had been in, I'd met some people from London, um, at sort of fall of 95, at, of all places, Chesky Crumlove. Which is a little <laughs> little village in, um, or well, yeah, relatively little uh, in uh, the Czech Republic. Right. And I was there for a, a conference on the Rosicrucians. That was. Um, Isn't that the place where Barton lived? Um, oh God, who's the one? Uh, R- R- Rosberg, Prince Rosberg was with. Okay, well, I'm not right yeah. mm-hmm. uh, But he met, you know, yeah, it had. I'm trying to remember the exact thing, but it was there was a Rosicrucian conference. Yeah, and people like Jocelyn Godwin, Nicholas Goodrich Clark, oh, okay, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, Robert Bly, who was very big at the uh-huh. time. He he was there. Uh, Christopher, I mean, qu- quite a few other people were there. Um, um, uh, Adam McLean, who's an alchemist, and, mm-hmm. and I was writing some articles for a, a magazine called Gnosis in the States that um, doesn't exist anymore, but, and they were sponsoring this and there was a place called the open center in New York that was sponsoring it as well. So I just wound mm-hmm. up going and I met some people from London there and they okay. said, well, if you want to change the scenery, you can come to London, hang out with us for a while. And so I came at the beginning of 96 and I just mm-hmm. wound up staying. So I've been here okay. ever since. Good. Good for you. Yeah. Well, let's now maybe turn to, one of the various reasons that we meet here today. Um, um, there has been a new book. Well, I, uh, as we have this interview published, it's hopefully now really well distributed on the market. But Corona, of course, yeah. kind of held it a bit back. And uh, we were all waiting for that new book of yours to appear. And it's called The Return of Holy Russia. And um that's quite a subject uh, in general, and uh, also the way you treat it, I find it extremely interesting. Um, but so maybe you want to give us just very briefly an overview on before you tell us what inspired you to write it. Uh, what is this return of whole Russia for you? Because actually, the return comes at the very end. The last chapter oh, is oh, also oh. called Return of whole Russia, but the, the whole story of the last probably 150 years that leads up to that return. That's what is mostly interesting, isn't it? Um, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, um, let's see. I mean, the book, what's it about? Um, 
<laughs> well, it's well. That's a good. That's a good question because often you write this thing and you think, well, actually, what is this about? Because <laughs> to tell you the truth, I think how did I wind up writing a history of Russia? I mean, it's mm. very strange. I wound up doing this in the first place, but. Um, well, it's hard to say what it's about without saying what sort of prompted me. No, to, go, go ahead. Go to where you want to, write to do it, it of but, course. Um, mm. I mean, I, the previous book, Dark Star Rising, which was about the occult politics around Trump and, and, and so on. Um, mm -hmm. Some of that dealt with um, th things happening in Russia. Um, and um, at the end of that book, I thought I had a lot of other material. And I was actually quite, I was quite uh, kind of, um, what's the word? Um, interested and hepped up about this notion of Eurasia, um, which mm -hmm. is this idea that there's this new civilization arising up out of Russia, and it's called Eurasia, and it's going to sort of be the Rudolf Steiner was also talking about the not necessarily Eurasia per se, but he was talking no, about say, but this new kind of yeah. cultural epoch coming out of Russia and yeah. other people as well, and all that. Mm -hmm. But in any case, so I thought oh, I have a lot of material I'm you know I'm, I'm left over. Maybe I can do something with that. But then I thought I didn't want to write about that per se, particularly. Um, but then um, I saw that um, there was an article about um, Putin back in the t 2015 mm -hmm. um, at the annual meeting of uh, United Russia, which is the big you know, political party there. And he had given a reading list to his regional governors. And on this reading list were some people, these Russian philosophers that, uh, whose work I knew. Um, one was Nikolai Berdyaev, who's this um, Christian existentialist. Um, who nobody reads anymore, but he was, he was mm -hmm. very well known in the 30s and the 40s. And Vladimir Soloviev, who's even less well known, but he's a very important esoteric philosopher. And he's like the first Russian philosopher. And people like Steiner um, read him. And people like Uspensky mentioned him as well and, and, and mm -hmm. others. Um, and so I just thought it was interesting that, oh, God, here's these very you know, strange esoteric philosophers, as it were. And mm -hmm. Putin, oh, God, you know, a world leader is asking, you know, and so what's that all about? Um, and then I saw the response from Western critics, and they were basically seeing it as a very jingoistic sort of um, uh, attempt by Putin to promote these philosophers who had this kind of what, what we would call Russian exceptionalism, you know, the notion mm -hmm. that um, Russia has this peculiar uh, messianic destiny in world history and so on and so on. And to some extent, yes, that's true, but not exactly in the way that they were presenting it. They were presenting it in a much more overt political kind of way, uh, at least with Berdyaev and Soloviev, it, it isn't really the case. So um, I thought, well, yeah, it's, it's kind of understandable or typical that this would be the response. But I thought, you know, it's, it's, it's not very good because, you know, whatever Putin's reason might be for, um, you know, saying his governor should read these guys, they're worth reading on their own. And mm -hmm. there came out of this period called the Silver Age. Right. Not too many people in the West know, but from about 1890 to about 1920, more or less, there's this fantastic um, time of creativity art and music and literature and so on, but also in um, the esoteric and, and the occult and, mm -hmm. uh, and the mystical and magical and, and the spiritual and religious and so on and so on. And it, it, um, it seemed to promise this, you know, kind of cultural epoch. You mentioned Steiner saying this. It seemed to have the promise of some, some kind of new, new age, dare I say it, um, right. some way that would compensate or complement the, the increasing materialism and, and reductive and utilitarian and, you know, mm -hmm. severely practical 
um, uh, sensibilities of the West. Mm-hmm. And but then it got crushed by the Bolshevik Revolution. You know, it was um, before it could, you know, fulfill its promise. But now, 100 years later, Putin seems to be trying to bring that back in. Um, and for whatever reason, it's mostly because Russia has been going through a um, personality crisis, an identity crisis Certainly. for quite mm-hmm. some time. And, and rightly so. They're trying to you know, grab hold of something that can give them some sort of direction and, and narrative. But, but at the same time, I was aware that Putin had been presenting Russia as this last bastion of traditional values. You know, mm-hmm. and the idea yeah. that the West, the West is just d- completely deteriorated into this complete kind of uh, global marketplace where everything is, you know, up for grabs. Everything is negotiable. You can have everything yeah. your way, your way. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> have it your way. Well, you can have it your way in the West. You know, anything you want, whatever it is. And and Russia's no, no. We it's like you know we stand for traditional, you know family roles and traditional gender roles and traditional social yeah. hierarchy and all that. So that, that was mm-hmm. like the new cold war. And so it's like, yes. So what, and I wanted to know where did this holy Russia idea come from? Why is Russia holy? And that was just for me. And then I, after doing all the reading, it just, once I started going, it just started writing. It's the first couple of chapters are introduction. Here's like the basic ideas. Yeah. And yeah. another, another character, I t- uh, one character you talk about is this notion of Russian man. Yeah. This, you know, completely, you know, contradictory um, character who's able Bi- to... Bicephal almost, right? Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's able to hold both kind of mm. brain, brains going on on, on 10 at, at the same time. And everything's kind of, you know, turbulent and contradictory and full of all these oppositions. And it's this whole mm-hmm. antinomian beyond good and evil, you know, um, or, or sort of thing, you know, Rasputin, the holy devil, you know, the, the, yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the, the things together like that. And so this was something that's not, you know, we don't like that sort of thing in the West. It's too crazy uh, for us. So, um, so it was, it was, uh, I, I, and I just, I just, I said, that's kind of like the first, first couple of chapters sort of setting the tone and introducing mm-hmm. the character. Then I just, I just found myself writing this narrative about it and, and I just couldn't stop at one point. So it was like, well, I just got to pull this up. I got to pull this back up to Putin today doing this. And, how to, and <laughs> for myself, it was, it was an education because I didn't know, I, I knew hardly anything about Russian history aside from around Rasputin and the Romanovs and the revolution. That's the, that's the period that, know most well-read people have have some idea about um but so much of the the other stuff i I didn't really know and it just was fascinating to learn about it so it was an education for me um so and i mean at least i hope i can pass on to the readers the interest i had in discovering um you know uh all all of this um stuff because it's full of so many fantastic stories and and characters and dramatic you know um contests and crises and things of that sort Oh, absolutely, and and I think it's it's very important it's because it shows a to me a completely new facet of Russian history, where things you don't usually hear in the regular history books, of course. But then also it is far from other approaches to Russian occultism that we have seen in the in the last mm-hmm. five to ten years, which is which are often very much rooted in that old tradition that we don't know and don't understand because Uh we don't know it and therefore it stays still 
in spite of those books, remote of of uh, our uh, of uh. our mind when you read it. Uh. And I I think you bridge something very important here. There's something there. I mean, there are many fascinating and uh, uh, chapters that uh, that I wouldn't like to pick those two out just for because they are better than the others but um one that that really struck me was uh, maybe you can expand a little bit on that one is the esp in the ussr right. so that, that that really i found that quite amazing can you say a few words to our people about that not too much they should read it but maybe just to, to give a, a few well hints. i mean one what well i mean it it it's it seems strange but in many ways it's it's in keeping with this kind of paradoxical uh, nature of the Russian character, um, mm. which I hope isn't too much of a cliche, but, um, you know, with USSR or, you know, Le Lenin, uh, and all that, we mean, we don't think of it in any way being interested in anything that would be psychic or actually Lenin, Lenin himself, he, he basically said his, his, his mission was to eliminate inwardness. He wanted to eliminate the whole idea that there's any, anything in there and everything was just, you know, it was whole the environment, yeah. but actually, um, one of his, um, you know, great, um, or, and, and, and with Stalin as well was Maxim Gorky, um, you know, who's the, one of the great Russian writers from the time. I, you know, people in the West know him. He's kind of like a Jack London, uh, not quite the same of uh, that. Might, I don't know if that means much to you, but for, for English and American readers, it might, you know. Of he, course, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. He, he, he kind of lived this, this, this rough life yeah. Um, yeah. and, you know, down. He's kind of like Orwell down and out in, in yeah. Paris and London mixed with kind yeah, of Jack, yeah. London, uh, Jack yeah. London, as it were. But he was very interested in the whole idea of telepathy, of thought trend. Transference. And right. He took it for real, mm -hmm. and um, he wanted to develop what we would call new thought today, or mm -hmm. mental science today, yeah. Um, yeah. as a, as a propaganda tool, and not even propaganda anymore, because it wouldn't even be a need to convince people of <laughs> the message. It was real, exactly. Yeah. Be able yeah. to transmit it, and this goes. Yeah. I mean, the backstory to that was how um, the early Bolsheviks adopted a lot of symbolist um, uh, techniques. And symbolism is this art movement that was very richly involved with the occult yeah. and, and all of that. But the whole idea was this kind of art would have this transformative power. It, it, it would be able to suggest, you know, a, another kind of consciousness and actually mm -hmm. make that happen in you. Yeah. He wanted to take it a next step where it's, it's not just something that has a suggestive, uh, persuasive power, but it actually it, it radiates, you know, this message. And there was a Russian sci scientist, Bekhterev, who was, uh, you know, given a lot of funding um, to investigate all these sorts of things. And they took it very, very seriously. And there's this wonderful story. Um, I mean, it's a sad story, but it's a wonderful story about these two, uh, well, this one um, a Cheka uh, agent, uh, Gleb Bucky, um, who was, um, you know, part of the early revolution. And he was actually sort of the... Um, what you would call it, kind of the head of security or something in St. Petersburg. Mm -hmm. And he was involved in all these sort of purges that was going on. I mean, you know, like the French, right. Re French revolution, it, the early days, everything's wonderful comrade and brother. Yeah. Then it turns into the terror. Sure. And, um, and that happened too, uh, mm -hmm. in, in Russia. And he becomes increasingly sickened with what, what the carnage that's happening. And he, meets this other guy, Alexander uh, Barchenko, who is a kind of doctor, but it's unclear whether he actually has the you know credentials for it or not. But he's very interested in a variety of esoteric practices, um, you know, Tibetan Buddhism, but also Rosicrucianism and, you know, what, what we would call parapsychology and all that. Mm -hmm. And it's a long story. It's, it's told in a um, wonderful book called Red, Red Shambhala. Um, and it's, um, in the long run, they 
try to get funding for an expedition to Tibet um, because, A, they want to be able to bring back the spiritual wisdom of the Tibetan Buddhists there so they can actually use these practices in order to make the revolution what it should be. Yeah. You know, rather than this carnage, a real, a real true brotherhood and, you know, real true, yeah. you, know, um, you know, union and harmony and all that. Yeah. And also that they believe that the, 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 the yogis there um, have what they call this kind of super science. So they're, they're aware of these powers, like mental science or mind science or, and, and, and in the, well, in, in the end, they wind up getting, you know, shot and purged just like everybody else. But, mm. um, the, you know, for a while it was very close, you know, that they were going to be able to go there. And the, uh, the Soviets are very interested in Tibet. And, and one of the other great stories is um, Nicholas Roerich, who is the... Great, you know, great painter and mystic and, and traveler. And he, he was the inspiration for Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which inaugurates exactly. modern music and so mm-hmm. on. But uh, he left, you know, he was, he was a rabid anti-Bolshevik and he mm-hmm. came to the States and became actually quite successful. But then he, wa- he had this really bizarre plan to um, start a pan-Buddhist nation in, in, in Inner Mongolia by getting like the Buddhists from all the other countries around there. Uh, to kind of join it. And he tried to get the uh, Bolsheviks to fund it um, uh, and all that, and wound up going to Moscow and meeting with people and all that. But in the, in the long run, he had to hightail it because he, he caught wind that they were, you know, thought he was working for the British or they didn't know who he was working mm-hmm. for. And so he had to leave. And then, uh, so, yeah, there's this, you know, and then it goes up to, you know, modern day or, or, you know, we, all those books came out in the seventies about psychic discoveries behind the iron curtain and, and, uh, the curly in photography and, and, um, you know, the woman who could move the little pieces yeah, of paper and yeah, things like yeah. that. So, you know, the same stuff is going on in, in the States, but it's somehow, you know, it, it, it what was I was gonna surprising say, over there, right? Well, yeah. And in, in that sense, because it's supposed to be so, yeah. m- you know, materialistic and, and, yeah. and, and all that. But, um, I mean, again, it sounds cliche, but it does seem to be, something in the Russian character or the psyche there that is more prone and open to that sort of thing and, um, than, than, than in the West. Yeah. Pro- probably rooted in. Or, or, or in America West. When I said, I, I don't mean Europe so much because there's all, you know, the, they have their own sort of rootedness in different you know, forms of that there, but certainly sure. in America. Yeah. Sure. But the, the, the East of Europe, let's put it that way, has certainly had its own, hmm. its own very particular roots that, uh, that are probably more earthed than in other parts of, of hmm. Western yeah. Europe. Yeah. Um, do you, do you, I, I know you can't be a prophet on that, but do you think that return of Holy Russia as you mentioned Putin, he was pushing that for obvious reasons also, but do you think he's eventually going to succeed? Is there enough? Do you have a view if there is enough well, openness among uh, the public opinion well, in I, Russia about you know, it? I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, in, in a way, I'm not really, I'm, what, in a way, it's sort of more about these ideas from mm-hmm. philosophers from the Silver Age, how important yeah. I, I think they are, and they were important yeah, 100 sure. years ago, sure. and they're still important uh, today. So it's kind of, what I'm saying is like, well, you know, whatever reason Putin has for mentioning these guys, they're still important to us uh, uh, to read, and we shouldn't be put off by um, any, and uh, you know, um, well, how should we say it? Uh, you know, we shouldn't be put off by, you know, Putin suggesting reading them to say, oh, no, no, they're horrible. Yeah, because, sure. And, and sure. Why, the, why, why are they important? They're important because 
what the essence of Russian philosophy, which is very, very strange because it doesn't really um, play by Western rules, uh, because it's it's um, it's not concerned with logic or epistemology or how do we know things and all that. So mm -hmm. it's it's concerned with what is you know what is the right thing to do or what, right. what is what is truth um, yeah. uh, not, not not in a factual sense but in this kind of um, value like, or the good the true and the beautiful you know is, is yeah. Plato yeah, told yeah. us to yeah, pursue yeah. and what the these Russian thinkers felt and saw was that happened in the West was that they completely lost track of these ideas and it all became utilitarian or very practical or scientific and reductionist or, or you know concerned with um, how should we say it uh, an over fastidious concern with, with establishing certainty, uh, and, and, you know, certain kinds of things. And so, you know, it's, you know, you have, yeah. you have, you have people like Wittgenstein trying to end philosophy twice because he just thought it was just completely wrong and all that. And, but they had developed this whole kind of, um, philosophical, uh, vocabulary and, and approach to what what became the concerns of existentialism you know the meaning yeah. and purpose of life you yeah. know what, what, yeah. what, what, is history going anywhere you know yeah. is is there any direction yeah. to anything you know what yeah. is the good life and things of that sort and in a variety of different ways they're all talking about that and in some yeah. very specific ways there's some thinkers whose work is very much in tune with today there's one um uh, sergey bulgakov um who you know most people don't know about but he was um, he's one of these peepers, people who were put on what was known as the philosophy steamers. There were these boats that Lenin exiled all these thinkers, intelligentsia on, who he didn't want to just eliminate because the press would have been too bad, but he didn't want them in the country anymore. And mm -hmm. Bulgakov had, had uh, he went from being a Marxist, then he had this transformative experience in the Caucasus when he became aware basically of the earth as a living kind of being. Uh, and the beauty of nature was not just this arbitrary, you know, illusion created by mm -hmm. whatever, you know, um, mm -hmm. my neurons doing something yeah. or, or other. It was actually a living presence. Yes. And um, he developed something that, and he was an economist, and he developed something that he called Sophianic um, e uh, economy or ecology. And this, this was his whole tradition of the Sophiology in, in, what, in, in Russian um, philosophy, which is Sophia, right. Sophia the, the fallen wisdom of, of the divine and the Gnostic yeah, 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 yeah. tradition in the Kabbalah. And, oh, that's where it comes from, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. uh, and it, it's also rooted in the German philosopher Schelling. Um, of course, yeah. I mean, most yes. people know, okay, Hegel hit it big yeah. in Russia. No, no, you're right. Actually, Schelling actually, is, Schelling in that is, respect, is Schelling very important. Was very, very important in, in Russian yeah. philosophy. And, um, Absolutely. A, a lot of these philosophers from the Silver Age and Schelling's whole thing is that nature is a living presence and nature is, nature is visible mind and mind is invisible nature. So instead of the Cartesian you know, separation of inner and outer and the external world and my inner world and there's some real objective world out there. And then I have a little puddle of consciousness metaphorically inside my head, which is my subjectivity and, you know, all my values and meanings and purposes and dreams just happen in there. They don't have anything to do, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, yeah, which, yeah. Has, which has landed us in a big mess for the last, you know, several centuries. Schelling was trying to bridge that gap, you know, between, the, between the inner and outer so that we're not alienated, you know, yeah. um, beings yeah. in the world. And this Many of the philosophers from the Silver Age are trying to do that as well. So mm -hmm. it's like, it's not, it's sort of like, uh, yeah, they're talking about in some ways these traditional kind of roles, but they're also talking about this, what we, what we would call ec ecological and also sort of feminine yeah. kind of issues in the sense. They're interested in the feminine side of, of, of nature and reality. And, um, 
you know, uh, there's, 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 it's, it's interesting because there's, a, there's, um, it seems to be this, it's more of the mother, the motherland. It isn't the Vaterland. It isn't the fatherland. There isn't like a very, it seems in, in mm-hmm. the, what I can gather, it's like one, the, one of these cosmic philosophers is guy Nikolai Fedorov. He, he's the one who has this more kind of father patriarchal sort of thing. Cause I, I, I don't know if you got up to him in the book, but he's one of the, his, his sure. strange idea was, you know, there was something that he called the common task and this, this would unite all the whole planet. And the common task was to revive the dead. And yeah. he didn't know how we were going to do it, but he knew that if we once realized that this was something that everybody could get behind, mm-hmm. we, would, we would unite everyone behind this common effort and all the world's ills, you know, would, would dissolve just through that. And then, you know, we would bring back the dead. And then because we brought back the dead, we'd have to find some place to put them because the earth would, you know, soon be overpopulated. (laughs) And so we had to go out into outer space. And it sounds crazy, but these ideas actually were were at the the foundation of the Soviet space program later on. There was, there was someone who was kind you know, who was better of and and took these ideas, a guy named Konstantin Silikovsky. And he was sort of sat at Fedorov's feet and he took these ideas and he's the one who figured out actually how to, you know, the rocket, rock, it is rocket science. They figure out the rocket science that would get out into space to do this yeah. sort of thing. And he had, yeah. and yeah. that's a whole other, a whole other side of it too. There is this whole kind of school of cosmic philosophy in, in, in Russia that unlike in the West where we see ourselves, we see ourselves as accidental chance products in this strange mm-hmm. alienated, you know, world and it's every alienated ego for themselves um they see it more as this humanity is a, is part of this cosmic process it's it's a part of the earth just as trees and clouds and lakes and mountains are we're not something unique and special we're part of yeah. this kind of you know and um and they try to link it up you know uh, you know, act solar solar flares and sunspots affect social um, activity and, and, you know, a variety of different things like that. And, you know, you, you can think what you may about the details of the particular ideas, but it's the central general mm-hmm. sense that, you know, we're not these individual competing egos. We're part of, a, um, you know, a larger kind of um, holistic framework. kind of framework. Yeah. Things. I mean, and that has its benefits and its drawback too, because mm-hmm. uh, forget about free will and, you know, <laughs> and, and, and forget about sure. following following your own kind of path because you know no you're you know you 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 can't be an uppity cell you know you have to be yeah. part of the the great cosmic organism so you know these things have their their good sides and their their downsides as well. Fascinating. In any case, well, that book is now waiting for you listeners to finally be read and. Um, you should, you really should. Gary, before we have to leave each other, um, tell me about your next plans. What should we be waiting for and look forward to in the next few months or so? Well, you might know about it already. I'm doing a book on pre- precognitive dreams. I, I, joke. I, joke. Uh, I, 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 I dreamt something like that last, last, uh, yeah. you should write that down. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm doing, it's, uh, yeah. doing a short book about, um, well, it's about some of my own precognitive dreams and some of others mm. and okay. how can we possibly have them? All right. So when is that you? Uh, well, I'm still working on it. So, so it's still uh, a precognitive uh, yeah, dream. Yeah. I mean, I have, I have yeah. to deliver it sometime this year. So I would say sometime next year. Right. Let me see. Right. Yes. I predict sometime. Next year. <laughs> Very good. 
Well, Gary, it was lovely to have you here tonight, and um, it was always uh, such a pleasure to speak to you. And finally, we did that one. Uh, and I hope it wasn't the last time we met on the Thoughts Hermes podcast. Thank you for your time. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely. My and pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Of course. And uh, well, good luck with all your projects. All right. You too. Thanks. I will not cease to hope I am her mother And she is my light I'll leave no path untrod No stone uncovered Till I find my flower bright I try to seek the truth to find an answer maybe I held on far too tight maybe she slipped away and chose a lover as other girls do every night I will not pass a door that I can open no fence to
Eluses. That was the third song from the CD Persephone by Wendy Rule that we heard today. Other songs from Persephone we played in the episode with Bernard Alvarez. If you haven't listened to that one, go back and do so. And of course, she was also the creator of our title and outro song in the two first seasons of this show. So thank you, Wendy Rule, for that. And thank you for your great music. If you want to hear more, want to know more about her and want to also see about her other activities, go to her website, wendyrule.com. You find the link on the show notes. Right, guys, I think this was a very, very nice talk with Gary. And I'm glad we finally did that because it was about time. He has so much to say and he's such a charming and interesting guy. I really like to talk to him and I hope you enjoyed. Well, that's the end of today's show. Yes, and I thank you all for being with us here today. Thank you for listening. It was great to have you and I will enjoy having you back next week on June the 21st. That will be the last show of this season four, episode number 24 of season four. It's amazing how the time flies. We just started that season on in January on the first weekend. And here we are already in the middle of the year and at the end of the season. I am already looking forward to creating a new season for you. And I have already done a lot of planning, even done a few interviews already. And I am sure there are lots of interesting things for you there. You're going to like it. For now, I will just let you know what comes to you next week. Next week, my guest on this show will be Thomas Vincente. And Thomas Vincente, he is the author of that great book, The Faceless God. It's a question about diabolism. Well, I don't tell you much more. The Faceless God, just Google it, you'll find it. And the exciting thing about that interview, next to all those exciting things that Thomas Vincente has to say, is that it is his very first podcast interview. He has so far refused to do podcast interviews. And I'm very happy and a little proud that he accepted to come on my show. And I think you should be also very happy and a little proud that you are going to be his first audience on a podcast. Right. And um, well, that's about it uh, for today. I am looking forward to have you next week. I'm looking forward to have you back in season five, all of you. And for the time being, the only thing that I can say is, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.